can go ahead and take a seat. Heavenly Father, you are good indeed. And the same God that we see in Genesis, the mighty one, and then Yahweh Elohim, the one who named himself to his people, who is mighty. It's a God then that came as a man and taught us and showed us the perfect picture of God and who suffered when we deserved to suffer and died when we deserved death because of our sin, but who did not stay dead and came back to life and then ascended to you, Heavenly Father. We think of you now in heaven and we are not discouraged now because we know you are great and you are in charge. So we pray to you alone, God, and no other pray that as I teach this morning, people would understand. And in doing that by your spirit, you would work in their hearts that in that understanding, they would, they would see you in a new way that they never have before or a renewed way that perhaps they've forgotten. And in that they would see who you are, God, and what you have done, especially in Christ Jesus. And they would praise you and see that you are indeed good. Thank you that we can pray in the name of Jesus as part of his family, children chosen by you and under his authority. Amen. So we're back into Genesis this morning. We took a couple weeks off. I think it was just a couple weeks. Um, Weeks and days seem to blend together lately. It's hard to keep track of them. This morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And we've been asking the whole time, how did we get here? And there's different ways to think about this, right? There's this idea of creation, how did we get here? And then along with that, how did we get here to where it seems like things are not great very often? And I I was reflecting over the past week on the sermon series to try to do a summary of Genesis 1 that we've been taught so far. And I think about Jasper and Todd and Charles teaching us. It was so encouraging as we went through Genesis 1 because all their gifts were working together across the weeks. And ultimately, what they taught us from Genesis 1 wasn't a response to wrong thinking. So, so much of what we teach from Genesis in the church is like, basically this, this thing to explain why evolution is wrong, right? That's so much of what Genesis has taught us. And even as I studied this week, a lot of resources are about creation. And our church has a pretty strong position on creation. And we're proud and happy and glad and excited to teach that. But the way that the men approached Genesis 1 was not to try to disprove a human idea, but simply to say, this is what happened. And that this teaches us about God. And it's awesome because when you look at the fullness of God's word altogether, then you know that at the start of something, They're teaching us about God so that when we see who God is and what God has done, we're instructed. And there's three things, really, that we can pull out of this. Endurance. When we're instructed by Scripture, we have endurance. And that means we can stick with it. Whether things are awesome or whether things feel really hard, when you endure, you can stick with it. You can persevere. And then encouragement, motivation. And ultimately, the encouragement of the scriptures is that we would have hope. Confidence that God has something better than it is right now. And in the case of this sermon, something better than he's ever done before in the future. So what did we learn from Genesis 1 that gives us endurance and encouragement and hope? 
in the beginning, God. So God was before creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. Because God was before creation, God is outside of creation. He's different than creation. And at some point, the creator, God, in eternity past, spoke. And by the power of his word, things were created, the heavens and the earth. And in this we learned, I think Charles focused on this. I can't remember the exact reference from what he was preaching in Genesis 1. But God has a pattern that he shows of who he is and how he thinks in creation. And that's that he takes things that are disordered or things that we would say are in chaos and he orders them and kind of brings them into a a certain way of being in order. And in the order of creation, so days one, two, three, four, five, and then the start of day six, we kind of see this working of God towards something in creation. And that's basically that he wants to sustain people, human beings, mankind, you and I. People are special in creation. And God said it this way, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? Let us make man in our image after our own likeness. It means two things. To be made in the image of God means that you were made to represent God. To be like him. To show the world what God is like. And in this we see value and purpose. So there, there's value in being made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And that's why the Bible, as it, we look at the fullness of the Bible, is so serious and takes so seriously this idea of life and the value of life. You don't take life away because people, man, is created in the image of God. You don't mess with life. It's a very grave thing to take a life away. And then also we see this idea of honor. So the way that we use our mouths and talk about people, we're to honor people because they're made in the image of God. So whether you're speaking things or typing them with your fingers on social media, you you don't dishonor people. You don't mock people. I remember hearing this teaching. Again, I think it was Charles, and I was cut to the heart because I'm a mocker and a sarcastic jerk in how I communicate about people. And that's the Spirit of God working through our, our preachers to convict a fool like me. So there's value and being created in the image of God, and then purpose. And ultimately, that purpose is to bless, to bless. Ephesians 2.10, some of you know it, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. As we make the connection across the span of Scripture, we see that the good works are ultimately to be like God and to represent God. Those are the good works, to carry out the purpose of why we were created. So because God rules over the earth and goodness and righteousness and kindness and God blesses the earth, that's what we're supposed to do as well, being created in his image. And then we learn that God created all this and it was good. And then a couple times it says, very good. Now this is an interesting idea. So there's goodness that God creates and then there's very good. That word means uh, 
excessive, abundant. So I was thinking about candy in regards to this. Who's kids? Any kids in here like candy? Any grown-ups like candy? Okay. So they have this candy, and it's called a snack size, right? And it's like this little square. So the, I don't know. What's a good candy bar? Snickers? If you have a peanut allergy, Milky Way, perhaps. Um, Snickers has a snack size, and then it has a fun size. And you know what's annoying about fun size? It's not fun at all, because there's a full size that's way more fun than the fun size. And then beyond that full size, there's just something called king size. And there's a bigger one now. I was at the store the other day looking. I was going to throw candy out, and I'm like, ah, parents will be weird about COVID and giving candy to kids. So sorry, kids. It's your parents' fault. But think about this idea of bigger and bigger and more. And then think about very good. And the culmination of all this, we learned, Jasper taught us this through the word of God. The culmination of all isn't more work. So God creates for six days. And on the seventh day, he rests. A day of rest. And the day of rest points our hearts and our our minds, the way we think, and our bodies as well, our created bodies, to deliberately be with and think about God and to deliberately enjoy being with God. And then as we look across the full span of Scripture, we see there's more to it than that even. It's awesome. The purpose of God establishing this pattern isn't just to emphasize a single day. It's to emphasize a single person named Jesus Christ. This is the rest and peace and satisfaction of abiding in Jesus Christ. To be with Jesus and to enjoy his presence. You know what we do? We mess it up. There's kind of two ways, extremes, that we mess it up. We ignore it completely. So we ignore God by ignoring this day of rest. We never think about God at all. So we kind of mess it up by breaking the rules, you might say. And then others of us mess it up in this kind of other extreme of way, and we we mess it up by making additional rules on top of it. We say, I care so much about God, I'm going to make up some rules beyond what God has said to like double and triple honor God through my own rules. And Jesus comes to earth as a man, so God comes and puts on human flesh. And he says to the people, and if you read the Gospels over and over and over again, over and over and over again, you see this. He says, you don't, you don't get it. You don't get it. Pointedly, directly, Jesus says, this day was made for you, not the, not the other way around. I made this for you, not the other way around. He says, God, God is God. He doesn't need one special day to be sovereign over things. You need the day. You need this rest to remember who God is and what God has done. And the rule makers hated it. They hated that Jesus said that. It drove them absolutely nuts. And Jesus responded to them by quoting the prophet Hosea. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifices, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. We hear the word mercy and we think, okay, God wants us to uh, have pity towards people who are poor or less than us. 
But the, the word there in the, the original language in which Hosea was writing it down is r- richer. So it's like a, a dessert. Sometimes in my small group, we have this debate. And small groupies, where's Mike? I see him. It's basically like pie versus cake, right? And it's a debate. And I know the pie people and I know the cake people. And actually, I don't care. I, as you can see, <laughs> hidden behind the shirt, I will eat any dessert that there is. But it's like pie versus cake, Layers of, all right, cake. Layers of things, right? So I think about layers of goodness and kindness and love. That's that word in the Hebrew language that we translate as mercy because we don't have a cool enough idea to encompass it all. God desires goodness and love and kindness. Yes, there is important work to be done and it must be done. God has called us to do it. But something bad happens when we look at that work that God has called us to do, and that work becomes more important than God himself. And what God wants above all else for you is that you would know him and be like him, filled with goodness and love and kindness, and that you would then pour that goodness and love and kindness out on other people. And as I look out across our church this morning, and I look across Ottawa County, where we are, and the state of Michigan, and the United States, and then the world, I just, I see a people who are thirsting, and thirsting, and hungering for goodness, and love, and kindness. And we try all these other things. We try political means. We try fighting. We try quarreling. We try just doing good things. We try putting our heads down and trying really hard. And there's all these things. But they're failed attempts at fulfilling this thirst and hunger that we have. And we aren't encouraged. And then we don't have endurance. And there's no hope. So as I think about this sermon going forward, the endurance that we have, the ability to stick with it, And the encouragement that we have from scriptures and the hope is this. Creator God, when we think back of what we learned from Genesis. Creator God, who spoke the world into existence. Creating things over six days. And then who rested on the seventh day. Creator God is the same one who calls out to us this morning. Come to me all who labor and are weary and I will give you rest. It's the same God. Creator God is the same God then who said to people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. God takes dehydrated, broken hearts like ours. He pours his goodness and love and kindness on them. He saturates our broken hearts with his goodness, love, and kindness. Because he knows that in his sovereignty and his perfection, that when he does that, that a heart that is changed to be like his will carry out the purpose for which that life was created in the world. So, when we read Genesis 2, verse 4, we need to remember something. And that's that the history of creation that we've learned about and we're going to keep learning about teaches us about God. Look at verse four in your Bibles. I love it when the heads go down and people are looking in their Bibles. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this is essentially the word used there is, this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. This is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. And we know this from, that, from what we've learned in that passage. They were created 
So they, they didn't exist at one point in time, and then they existed at one point in time. And that happened because God created the heavens and earth. And the awesome thing about the creator is how he refers to himself here. So in chapter one, God is referred to by Moses, who's writing it down, as Elohim. So it means mighty God. When we read that word, God, as it's translated in chapter one, it's all about strength and power. But here it says Lord God in the original language, Yahweh Elohim. So there is this idea of power with that in his creating. But then there's also this Yahweh, this idea of that's who God said he was to the people. So when Moses met God, he's like, who who should I say sent me? Who, Who am I supposed to do this for? What should I tell the people? God said, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. The almighty creator of the earth has told us his name. You have a relationship with Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. So you know the almighty creator who created the heavens and the earth. That's what we remember from this history. And things were different back then. So when God created the heavens and earth, things were different back then. Look at verses five and six. Now these, I would say if we ranked them, probably top five trickiest verses to understand in scripture. There's some other ones. I know someone will come up and ask about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim and all that stuff, right, Jasper? But these are probably top five trickiest because when you first read them, it seems like we're going back to before day three, doesn't it? I mean, there's no bushes or small plants, and then there's this weird mist thing that's happening. Look at them, verses five and six. And if that's the case, if we're going back to before day three in the order of creation, we have some problems because scripture then is contradicting itself and it doesn't make sense. And we would question then, could it be true if there's mistakes in it or contradictions in it? But Moses, who recorded Genesis for us, I don't know how God did it, but God told him what to write down. Moses is talking to his readers from their current perspective. So think about it right now. You're reading this from from a perspective of of where you are and our culture and things about it. Moses is writing to people from their current perspective. He's not giving another account of creation. He's focusing in on part of it when, when man was created. But the comparison that Moses is making is to back then against right now. So he wants us to know that it was different back then. God's about to do something in verse 7. If you look ahead, you'll see what God is about to do. And when he did that, it wasn't like it is right now. There wasn't any rain. Look at There weren't amber waves of grain. There weren't fields of soybeans. There weren't tractors driving around spring roundup to kill the weeds. And there's this mist. And it's, you know, you ever go to the grocery store and there's the mister things and they spray down. And when I was a kid, I would want to climb up in there and then my mom would have to take me out of the store because the store director got mad because there was a kid climbing on the lettuce. Like there's this mist that's going down in the store. But here it's like flowing upwards. It's different. You might want to think of that even like springs of water coming up instead of mist. 
From that, we know that water was everywhere and there was a lot of it. So let's think about this as reasonable people who can look at the word of God together. When did rain come to the earth? Who knows? Genesis chapter seven, rain came to the earth. Based on what? Based on God judging man. So there wasn't rain before it. I know that doesn't make sense to us, but this mist used to come up and then in judgment, God put rain down. Okay, so rain came as judgment. When did the ground need to be broken up? When did man need to work the ground in this special way? When did God say to man, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread? It was a curse from God to man because of his sin. When was fresh water all over the earth? It's not like that now. There's places that are absolutely desolate. You have to drill down just hundreds of yards even to get a drop of water. Everything that Moses is writing is saying, this was before it was the way you, it is now when you were reading this. It's different now. It was different, different back then. There's no judgment when God created the earth. There's no pain, no pointless, endless work, no sitting at desks, staring at computer screens all day, filling out useless forms with eight different bosses droning on about mission statements. There's no need to pull up thorns or weeds from the ground because they weren't there. There's no deserts or wastelands. God's life-giving water flowed up abundantly from the earth. It was good. All of it was good. It was very good. Double king-size candy bar good. And amidst this goodness, God gives life to the man. Look at verse 7. Go ahead. Then... The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So God grabbed dirt from the ground. I picture it as like this rich, black earth. There's a spot, if you're driving on, uh, I can't remember the road name because I'm not from Michigan, but basically by Hudsonville, that low spot, and you look at the dirt there and it is just jet black and you're like, that is good dirt. God takes that and he forms it into a man. And breathes life into it. And it's interesting because we know that God is a spirit, right? The Bible says that. So God doesn't have hands like this to form a man into. So he didn't actually grab dirt and shape it into a man and breathe into the, the man that he'd form. At Summit, we say that we, we interpret scripture historically, Right? grammatically and liter- literally in the right way. But how, how do you describe a miracle? How do you describe the miracle of creation? So we see miracles in the Bible. If you read the Gospels or the Acts, you see blind people who get their sight. And we get the idea of blindness, right? We get the, Even if you close your eyes right now, you get some, just a sliver of what it is to be blind because you can't see. So we understand something about blindness. And then Jesus or the apostles give someone sight, right? And it's like, whoa, we get what that is too, to be able to see, to look out and see people, to look in some strange way through technology in a camera, though I can't see you, you can see me. We get the idea of sight, But in our brains, there's this thing where we just can't quite get miracles. How do you write down and describe a miracle? And that's what verse 7 is describing, and that's this. God took 
dirt that he had made. And by the power of his word, just by him speaking, by him using his voice, the dirt, so the carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, magnesium, eight things probably. Maybe the dirt back then was, a little, was different than it is now, but these things that make up dirt. And he spoke this man into shape so that the dirt becomes bones and muscles and that weird thing in the back of your throat that no one knows what it's there for and teeth and your hair and your skin all came to be. But that's not even the coolest part of it. That's not even the coolest part that God took dirt and made a person out of it. It's that God has this lifeless dirt mannequin that he has made. And he breathes his own life into the man. And the man becomes something that he wasn't before by the breath of God breathed into him. He becomes alive. Apart from the life that God gives us, we need to remember that we are very well-formed and organized dust. And that should humble us. We're made of the same stuff you see when you're walking through the woods. You're made of the same stuff that you would see if you put a shovel into your backyard when you're doing a project. We are indeed, as scripture says, fearfully and wonderfully made and woven together. But even more important than that, the way that God composed our bodies is that he took lifeless things and put his own life into them. And he takes the man, look at verse, what is that, verse eight. He takes the man and he, he puts him in a home that he's supposed to serve and, and guard and then enjoy. Verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he'd formed. Now I'm going to jump to, I'm going to tack verse 15 onto this because it's related to it. So you need your Bible. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. There he put the man who he formed. Jump to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. So Eden was a place. We think of Eden and the garden as being the same thing, but they're, they're not. Eden was this bigger place. And then God planted a garden there. And it's to the east of wherever Moses was when he was writing this, right? So wherever Moses was at the time, the garden was to the east of where Moses was at that time. And the word garden there, it's, it's like we think of a garden now, but it, it's, it's a bigger idea too. Think about words like in, enclosure. Think about words like boundaries. Think about words like a place. And then this idea, we see that God is making a home for the man. And as, as you read the full breadth of God's word, you recognize this awesome thing, that the home there is not, not just for the man. God is making this place where, where he and the man, where people can be together, which is pretty unbelievable. And a side note, at first it's just a man. I think, Todd, you're going to talk about man and woman next week. But at first it's just a man. So woman isn't come along yet in regards to creation. So it's just a man. Woman isn't there yet. It's incomplete. Um, Todd will talk about it next week, what happens there. And God gives the man a purpose in the garden. So men, this is for you. And it's not like women can't apply this to their lives because as you read the full Bible, it's true 
But men, I want you specifically to focus on this, of the purpose of Adam, the man being put in the garden. He's supposed to serve and to guard it, to work and keep it. Look at verse 15. I think the exhortation then for men at Summit Church and your families, men throughout the world who claim the name of Jesus Christ would be this. Where you are planted, where God has planted you, you make sure it grows. You make sure it flourishes. It's a purpose that God has given you as a man. And where where God puts you then also, you're to guard it, to keep it, to look after it. And I don't want to get too much into Todd's sermon, but when Moses wrote this, he wasn't like, well, and then week two, we're going to break it up this way. He was just writing this whole thing. But as you look at verses 15 and 16 and 17 then, there's this way that God tells the man that he's supposed to look after the garden. And basically, it's like you can do and take from the garden in any way that you want. There's a tree of life. If you eat from it, you'll live forever. There's other trees that you can enjoy. And there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you're supposed to fully trust God to provide for you in all these things. And then fully trust that God alone gets to determine what's right and wrong. That's how we look after where God has planted us. He's given us gifts and provided for us that we can do the things that we need to do, but in matters of determining right and wrong, in matters of, you might say, morality, God alone gets to decide those things for his garden. Fully enjoy the life that God has given you. Don't make it about the rules, but there's one rule, one precept that you cannot violate or it will kill you, and that is that you don't get to decide what is good and what is evil. God alone gets to decide that. So the man is put there to serve and guard, to to work and look after, to care for the garden. But the garden, the purpose of the garden is to be enjoyed. Now, this is where it gets fun. Look at what God does in regards to planting trees in the garden. Out of the ground, this is verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Now, I picture this in this way where, like, they're not there. And then it's like one of those time-lapse videos where all of a sudden the trees are like and they grow to whatever height they would, which are like optimal for picking fruit off them. And God does it, I don't know, in like 15 seconds. So it's not instant, but like these trees just spring up out of the ground because God put them there. And what do we see about the trees? Don't miss this. Look at, look at the trees in scripture that God's, God puts there. What's the first thing that God says about the trees? They're pleasant to the sight. The trees that God put in the garden were good to look at. So there wasn't some like ugly, nasty tree that God put there. Maybe there were somewhere, but the ones that were reserved for the garden were these really beautiful trees. I want you to think about that idea of beauty and enjoyment and looking at things. And then what else? They're good for food, and that means two things. Good food, the trees that were good for food. They're abundant, they're good to produce food, but then they taste good. So tasty trees, they produce tasty fruit. So just think for a minute. And kids, you are way better at grown-ups than this. I don't know when it starts to wane, but like the older people get, they don't want to be imaginative anymore. 
right? So kids, you have an advantage right now that your parents do not have. I want you to think about a perfect garden like this and what you would do if you were in that garden. If God put you in a place like this that is about beauty and abundance and enjoyment, what would you do? I've got two words. Zip lines. So I picture this perfect place with all these trees. I'm like, I'm going to put zip lines up. There would not be cars. There would not be airplanes. There would not be boats. There would be zip lines. So if Corey, wherever he is right now, if Corey says, hey, do you want to come and have a bonfire and we'll listen to music together like music nerds? I'd be, totally. I'm going to zip line over to your house, Corey. And somehow, because of how the trees are set up, I could zip line over to Corey's house. And as we listen to music together, somehow in listening to that music, we would not only hear it with our ears, but see it somehow. God would make it play out and we would see music together, and it would be awesome. And then another thing, three words. So zip lines would be the way that we travel. And then three words, coconut ice cream. Now, I know immediately, coconut is a very divisive flavor. Some of you are like, I don't like coconut. I don't like the way it makes my mouth feel, and it tastes funny. I'm not talking about coconuts as we understand them right now. So picture a tree that has things that look like coconuts. Not the big green husk thing that you have to spend forever cutting off, but like the brown coconut things. And you break the coconut, and when you open it, instead of coconut inside, it's ice cream inside the coconut. And I know, I know this. Some of you are getting ready to fire up an email to Todd. We shouldn't be so joking around from the pulpit. And I'll say this. Am I being ridiculous right now? Yes. I'm being silly in talking about those things. But is it ridiculous to say that God pours his abundance and goodness out on us so that we would enjoy him? No, that's not wrong. That's biblical. What does this passage teach us about God? He made our home beautiful. Where he intended us for us to live with him, he made it beautiful. He made it to be enjoyed, and in our enjoyment, he expects that we glorify him. He gives abundantly. And this is an awesome idea, regardless of season of our life or anything. He gives us tons of things. He gives us more than we need. So that when we're enjoying those things, we can recognize we don't have to hoard things for ourselves We don't have to squabble and fight over the things that God has given us because he's given us more than enough. There's an abundance of what God has given us. And we can give it away and share it with others. We don't have to fight about it. And in in our sharing with others, we're glorifying God and we're enjoying what he's called us to do. And what he gives us is good, good, good. So that when we eat and drink it, we remember God's goodness. So this afternoon, if you eat something and it tastes good, if you drink something and it tastes good, there's something in your brain that will say, this tastes really good. I want to take more more of it. And before you do that, say, God, you are so good to give this to me. You're good to pour this out on me. You're good that I can have another portion. And though this won't control me, every time I do this, God, I will celebrate who you are and glorify you through what you've given me. Then we see God watering the garden and the earth through the garden. 
I'm not going to read all the verses 10 through 14 there, but there is a river that flows out of Eden and then it hits the garden. And it's interesting when it says in the Bible, uh, something is watered. So the, the garden was watered by something. Literally, that is, it's given something to drink. So God is giving the garden something to drink. And then out of the garden, these rivers flow out. And they do these things for the earth. They water it. They shape it. They even set boundaries that people can understand things about the earth. And what do we see in one of those places? You'll see the words gold, um, a word I can't pronounce, bdellium or something like that. Onyx. When the, when the river of God goes out and it hits the garden and then goes out from there, there's still goodness that is spread out. Gold. And it says even, hey, that the gold from that land, that's good gold. That means it's pure gold. You don't have to work hard to make something from this gold. The bdellium thing, I don't know what that is, but I know this from what I've read. It smells good. It's fragrant. It's a perfume. An onyx, it's beautiful. It's suitable for making beautiful things. So as we think about the way that God created things, never forget beauty and goodness and that God has called you to take these things and show who he is and what he has done to the world through the beauties that he's get, beauty that he's shown to us. And the rivers have names. I'll go through these quickly. You know, we shouldn't base our entire theology on sets of names of rivers in scripture. Fair enough. But the names do mean something. Pishon, and there is the idea that it distributes out to a wide area. It bursts forth. Yihon, it means it's bursting forth. And then there's two words that actually aren't in the Hebrew, but the, the writers of the New Testament changed the words so that we could understand better. And that's the Tigris and the Euphrates. But the Hebrew words mean this is a fast-flowing river. These are fast-flowing rivers, and they break forth. And the idea here is that water, we know, gives us life. And God gives water so God is the source of life. We should never forget that as we look at this account of what God did. So God's provision for all the earth was this mist in some way, but God's river is not that drip irrigation kind of thing or whatever it was. In the Garden of Eden, there's a special river that goes to it and God is providing his source of life for it and it's living water. God had Moses write this down, Genesis 2, 14, 4 through 14, to teach us so that we would have endurance and be encouraged so we might have hope. So the point of learning about the Garden of Eden, of God instructing us about the Garden of Eden and the creation of man, isn't so that we would kind of look over our shoulders back at Eden, but it's so that we would look forward to something greater. That's what hope is a recognition that there is something greater ahead. And it's in the midst of this present journey, he, God wants us to look at this account of who he is and what he's done and be encouraged to keep going because there's something better ahead. God gave us the good life. It was taken from us because of sin. The prophet Jeremiah wrote about sin in this way, the sin of his people. And this is speaking for God. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've made for themselves cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't even hold water. But in Jesus, the good life, 
that God intends for us has been restored to us. And the awesome thing is that the prophets speak not just of the good life right now, right? It's not just this health and prosperity gospel thing that we're so careful about not falling into. It's not goodness now, but it's something better for the future. Zechariah the prophet wrote this, on that day, this is a day ahead, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And we see this then in that Jesus is giving the apostle John this idea of what it's going to be like. Just a glimpse of it so that we would be taught, so that we would endure and be encouraged and look forward to what is to come. And John records it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he, was, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.
thinking about the good life, I couldn't help but to think after hearing Bjorn's sermon about being on a plane and trying to set up shop and make the journey on a plane cramped as comfortable as I can, not being able to lean my head back, pop, prop my feet up, being literally constricted and trying to say, you know what, this is where I'm going to choose to live life and make the good life. None of us would try to do that. We're begging to just be done with the trip. Let's hurry up and do this so we can get to the destination. Or if I can't get to the destination, let me go back home to my comfort, right? Stuck in between two places we'd rather be. We look back in the past and we see, man, how good it was that God made it and we forfeited it. We're not there We look ahead and we see the hope and the glory of the new creation God's making and that good life has not fully been experienced and realized. And right now, we're on the plane, suspended in the air, cramped, coronavirus everywhere, chaos everywhere, craziness everywhere. That's right, because the good life was not meant to be made right here and now. We look forward to a home that is coming and it will will be far better than what we look back at and marvel at. God is making something far better than what Adam and Eve experienced and we get to experience it through Jesus Christ and it is coming for every single person that believes. Keep the hope. Keep the faith. People, church of God, let's keep fighting the good fight and trust always that God is with us. He will never leave us and his mercy will never come to an end and we are awaiting a home that is coming. It is coming and he is good always church. We love you. We know there's a season coming up. There's Thanksgiving coming up. So let's truly use this week and this time to reflect on the goodness of God and all that he's done. We hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you next week. God bless.